today I'm going to distract you by talking about eyes, the history of eyes. Cicero said famously, nature has given us eyes to declare our eternal emotions. Puallo Coelho, 1957, said, the eyes are the mirror of the soul and reflect everything that seems to be hidden. And like a mirror, they also reflect the person looking into them. Now, of course, from ancient times to political commentary and then to, of course, popular self-help books today, eyes have been viewed as kind of windows to the soul. In the West, eye metaphors abound, the eye of the storm, eye of a needle, eyes as a mirror or an arrow. We see the light, we have insight or an eye for something. When things seem to be going awry, efficient people eye the opposition and just see that it gets done. Eyes are, of course, profoundly um, profoundly mythological, metaphorical, and historical. We only have to think of the divine eyes of the Egyptians, the Greek evil eye, the Hindu god of destruction, Shiva, who has a terrifying third eye in his forehead, whose glance renders the world to cinders. We close our eyes when faced with something horrifying or frightening in the hope that by not seeing it, it may not actually exist. Young infants, of course, laugh loudly when playing peekaboo, a game intertwining seeing, not seeing with the realities of self and other. A person who dies has her eyes closed so that she can sleep in peace. Indeed, a corpse that seems to return the gaze is profoundly uncanny experiences for mourners at funerals. Eyes also cry. Tears fulfill a physiological function. They moisten the cornea, they help um, with infections. Tears are necessary to vision. They smooth out the wrinkled, uneven surfaces of the cornea. But not all tears are the same. There are basically three kinds of tears, each of which contain subtly different proteins, oils, chemicals, and hormones. Basal tears are the ones that lubricate our eyeballs. They produce between five and 10 ounces every day. Which, and either evaporate or are drained through the puncture. Reflex tears are the tears that protect the eyes. We cry, for example, when cutting onions. I'm reminded here, if you remember, the end of Huckleberry Finn, um, when Tom Sawyer gets Jim to cut open an onion so that he can water the plant in his prison cell. And the third, of course, psychic tears. These are emotional responses to the world. We cry when we're sad, happy, nostalgic, in pain. Tear-jerking films gross billions of pounds every year. Now, I didn't know this, but humans are actually not born with fully developed tear ducts. You 
People here who has, have children recently probably do know this, but I didn't. Most babies start crying actual tears only at around two months of age, two weeks of age, but some can take up to two months to develop tear ducts. By the age of two, parents would have endured an average of 4,000 crying sessions. In contrast, the average adult cries between two and four times a month. Our uh, glands shrink as we age, so that by the age of 65, a person is no longer producing 40% of the tears that they were producing just a couple of decades earlier. This means that eyes become irritated, um, thus producing the reflex tears. As the historian of eyes, Tom Lux, put it, watery eyes are, ironically, a symptom of chronic dry eye. Now, while infant tears are interpreted as a kind of language, breast, please, please, now, adult tears often have a more psychic function. In popular culture, weeping is believed to be a healthy way to release tensions. Psychoanalysts warn against the dangers of repression, and some psychoanalytically informed practitioners even claim that failing to weep might result in ulcers or indeed headaches. But what I think we can all agree is that tears can be profoundly baffling. As our, um, Alfred Tennyson put it in The Prince's, Prince, uh, 1847, he wrote, Tears, idle tears, I know not what they mean. Tears from the depth of some divine despair rise in the heart and gather to the eyes. In looking on, a happy autumn, on the happy autumn fields and thinking of the days that are no more. Eyes also age. As a person enters what I like to politely call my middle years, <laughs> the skin of our lower eyelids sag. Lines appear. Fat may accumulate, creating um, bags under the eyes. Upper eyelids might also droop, making their eyes look less open and alert. Our eyebrows may thin or indeed grow bushy, hairs sticking out at unruly angles. But I think the chief message of eyes is in fact emotional. People infer how other people are feeling by staring deeply into their eyes. I mean, we don't need anyone here. We don't need cognitive neurosciences to convince us of the power of facial evaluations. Western people, for example, judge men with thick eyebrows to be dominant, women with large eyes, innocent. People of either sex who blink too much, dishonest. Now, these facial evaluations are cultural. In Victorian Britain, for example, people believed in optomography. That is, the belief that the retina retains the image of the last thing that it saw. This is why so many Victorian murder mysteries focus on what was reflected in the eyeballs of the murdered person. 
Common ideas that tears fall from women's eyes more frequently than from those of male ones um, turn out also to be culturally variable. We all know of King Lear's frustrated cry that let not women's weapons, water drops, stain my man's cheeks. Humorial medicine as well uh, maintained that women do cry uh, more than men because our bodies are moister, more moist. But I think it's important not to exaggerate this gendering of tears. After all, at various times, men were not only expected but required to weep. As Peter Shaw maintains in a 1755 paper entitled Man, a paper for the ennobling of the species, he wrote, Moral weeping is the sign of so noble a passion that it may be questioned whether those are properly men who never weep upon any occasion. They may pretend to be as heroic as they please and pride themselves in their stoical insensibility. But this will never pass for virtue when, with the true judges of human nature. In fact, Stoicism in Britain only emerged, for men, only emerged in the 19th century as a response to changing economic and business contexts. And, of course, as we all know, men never did stop bawling their eyes out, as anyone who's listened to Johnny Ray um, singing knows very clearly. Now, there are other culturally specific meanings given to eyes. In the West, honesty is reflected by looking in the eye, an act that is very rude in Japan, or, for example, amongst Australian or Canadian First Peoples. Indeed, this is the reason why eyes have been genocidal. The failure of Aboriginal peoples to make eye contact was proof, indeed, of their shiftiness. In British cultures, Victorians considered the body to be the locus of human essence, and eyes played a dominant role in their assessments. One of the most prominent proponents is one we heard a little bit of in my last lecture, and that was Sir Charles Bell, whose The Anatomy and Philosophy of the Expression as Connected with the Fine Arts, which came out in 1806, um, and you know, was extremely influential. Indeed, it was the most influential exploration of anatomy and the emotions in the first half of the 19th century. And in fact, it was um, much, much more widely read than that of Charles Darwin's expression of the emotions in man and animals would be a century later. Now, Bell's argument is beautiful. If you haven't read it, you can get it free on Google Maps, Google Maps, Google Books. Um, it is absolutely beautiful because his argument is elegant. It's transcendental. He contends that When pious thoughts prevail, man should turn his eyes from things earthly to the pure objects above. But there is a reason for this. When subject to particular influences, the natural position of the eyeball is to be directed upwards. In sleep, languor, depression, or when affected with strong emotions, the eyes naturally and insensibly roll upwards. 
the action is not a voluntary one. It is irresistible. Hence, in reverence, in devotion, in agony of mind, in all sentiments of pity, in bodily form, with bodily pain, with fear of death, the eyes assume that position, looking upwards. In other words, Bell argued that human eyes had been designed by God, designed to be indicative of the higher and holier emotions that distinguish man from brutes. Thus, when people, he continued, when people were wrapped in devotional feelings, their eyes instinctively looked towards the heavens by an action neither taught nor acquired. Bell admitted that the savage and the idolatrous Negro might not believe in God, but even they raised their eyes, quote, to the canopy of the sky when praying for rice and yams. In other words, his key point here is that anatomy um, bore, bears this kind of divine stamp. Now, Bell's reflections were profoundly influential, uh, not least in the development in Victorian Britain of the science of physiognomy. Now, of course, the science of physiognomy has a very long history. You can date it back to Aristotle and classical times. You can date it to Charles Le Brun in the 16th and 17th centuries. But it did reach its high point in Victorian times. Victorians were obsessed with the question, how can we know the Rapid, rapid urbanization, industrialization, meant that people had to find a way to rapidly assess the character of a large number of strangers. This was the promise of physiognomy. The 1810 definition of it, given in the Encyclopedia Britannia, says that it is a word from the Greek for nature and I know. It is the knowledge of the internal properties of any corporeal existence from the external appearances. In the words of the great artist, Lady Elizabeth Rigby Eastlake, the face is not only the appointed badge of distinction and proof of identity, but it is the sole proof which is instantaneous, an evidence not collected by evidence, by effort, by study, or by time, but obtained and apprehended in the moment. And that, as often as not, an unprepared moment. Reassuringly um, added another adherent, no man, no man appears other than he is. Facial expressions is kind of natural sign language to truly know another person and crucially, and this is absolutely crucial, to know how you should treat them. You only had to look deeply into the eyes of the other. So, what message did corneas, pupils, irises, eyebrows, eyelids, and eyelashes convey? Sir James Paget, um, 1814 to 1899, he's one of the founders of scientific pathology, um, taught that it is not rare to see one eyeball somewhat higher than the other. If the difference be very slight, it is likely to make a thinking and considerate man. When the eyes sink a little towards their inner 
angles, they denote warmth of mind directed to realities. When they rise towards them, they denote a similar mind directed to the super-sensuous and the ideal. And what you get in this period is hundreds, probably thousands, of tracts and books providing anxious readers with advice on how to correctly read other people's eyes. Just one example, physiognomy made easy, character as expressed in the human countenance. Readers are informed that angular line of eyebrow outwards showed resistance, acting morally and resisting temptation. Downward direction of inner line of eyebrow, evasion. Oblique setting and closeness of the eyes, deceptive. Fullness of muscles under the eyes, secretiveness. And wrinkled upwards between the eyebrows, justice. And we see such views and such things were still being published in the 1920s and 1930s. Now, the advantage of such schemes, schemas, was that the eyes never deceive. As one physiognomist put it, the eyes are the chosen abode of the soul. Within our stock of when our stock of expressions are exhausted, we have recourse to the silent eloquence of eyes which, freed from the shackles of grammatical rules, express with one look what numerous and complicated sentences would have failed to unfold. They can never betray truth. This was an assumption that has, in fact, been embraced in recent decades. The most prominent current um, advocate of this position is the psychologist Paul Ekman. Paul Ekman is famous for his work on the facial evaluation of the emotions. He claims that these facial expressions are in fact universal. And this is really, really important, that they're universal people, in other words, in all parts of the world, can look into the face of another person and know immediately what they are thinking and feeling. Of course, some people, he does argue, that some people are instinctively better at doing this than others. But, he argues, Ekman argues, that most people actually can be taught to read other people's emotions by studying the movements on their face. And eyes are absolutely at the heart of Ekman's coding system, facts. For example, his uh, research contends that the core expressions of pain involve brow lowering, eye closure, orbit tightening, that is the narrowing of the eyelids and the raising of the cheeks, and levator contraction, that is the raising of the upper lip and perhaps uh, wrinkles at the side of the nose between the eyes. Now, drawing inspiration from Ekman, other researchers have concluded that this is not simply a human thing. They have concluded that the eyes of mice and rats can actually tell us about their feeling states. So, most famously, we have here the rat grimace scale. 
Isn't that wonderful? I've wanted to say that for a long time. The rat grimace scale, which is in fact a standard way experimental scientists assess pain in rats. Suffering rats show nose and cheek bulge, ears pulled apart and back, a narrowing of the eye area with tightly closed eyelid. Eyes, in other words, are the windows to the soul, or in the case of rats, the fish soul with chips. <laughs> now, of course, Ekman's facts F-A-C-S, focused on himself, focused only on human emotions. The schema, though, was quickly employed to, in a policing fashion, to ferret out human liars and malingerers who were seeking to deceive physicians, pension authorities, or insurance companies. Since fax coders claimed that particular facial expressions were an indisputable index of pain. The system was employed to adjudicate on the reality, thanks, on the reality of verbal declarations of pain. So it's used to find out if people are lying to their doctors or insurance companies. An article entitled Detecting Deception in Pain Expressions came out 2002 and published in the official journal of the International Association for the Study of Pain, taught, explicitly taught physicians and others, people assessing pain, that they needed to pay attention to the markers of deception, by which they meant leakages, this is their term, leakages of the genuine expression of pain that could provide evidence that a person was lying. These leakages typically occurred around the eyes because people have less conscious control over the eye muscles. The authors also noted that people lying about their pain tended to include atypical facial actions, such as raising their eyes. This was due to the fact that the poser was not consciously aware of what a genuine expression looks like, or was the result of other expressions coming into play when a person was acting duplicitly. This was not surprising, therefore, that the raised eyes and the raised brow was reflected in the malingerer's face, since this movement was typically associated with a startle response or the experience of fear. So, in other words, what we have here in this shift from the 19th century I told, talked about earlier and 21st century facial expressions no longer the gold standard in judging veracity as the earlier commentators um, like Bell, Darwin, Lavater had assumed, but it is now the debased currency that could be judged, that could judge deception in the clinic and, of course, the law courts. Now, the policing use uses of facial coding systems expanded immeasurably after 9-11. Ekman's 
facial coding system was adopted by the US Transportation Security Administration, TSA. It's part of Homeland Security, primarily for the detection of terrorists, illegal migrants, and other undesirables passing through US airports. The TSA were particularly impressed by Ekman's claim to be able to identify micro-expressions, that is, involuntary leakages of expressions of fear or anger that appear on people's faces for microseconds, despite attempts to disguise them. In other words, attempts by potential terrorists to conceal anger, nervousness, or fear when approaching security officials at airports could be exposed by officers trained to be sensitive to micro-expressions. Ekman had discovered the existence of micro-expressions through, he did this kind of frame-by-frame -frame analysis of video footage. Um, but of course, examining video footage is extremely time-consuming and typically also takes place after suspicions have already been raised, or even worse, after a terrorist event. Ekman, however, maintained that he could train officials via MET, M-E-T-T, Micro-Expression Training Tool to pick up these micro-expressions. In other words, the human eye, he argued, could be taught to replicate video vision, seeing at 125th of a second. Um, officers could develop machine vision. Ekman's belief, um, and the TSA's belief, in the power of looking into the eyes of another and detecting true emotions and motivations was not the only technology eagerly grasped by security forces after 9-11. Ioannis Pavlidis, computer scientist, and James Levine, um, endocrinologist um, from the Mayo Clinic, developed what they called the periobital um, thermo thermography. This was based on the uh, physiological principle that when people were consciously lying, they feel stress, which causes rapid eye movement. This, this increase, the rapid eye movement, increases blood flow to the area around the eyes, which in turn raises a person's temperature, which can easily be captured on thermographic cameras. Like Ekman's MET, their system had the advantage of being used without the target's knowledge. Mental representations, no longer this private domain, but were able to be exposed to the prying eyes of security services. And we can talk about the actual practical uses that were made and still are made of these technologies. But what if the eyes do lie? What if eyes are not an accurate reflection of the inner self? From the late 19th century to the present, the eyes, its contours, symmetry, ridges, creases, crinkles, could be changed. Cosmetic surgery 
was premised on exactly the assumption that the external representation of the self was somehow distorted. Surgery was required to ensure that there is a correct match between a person's exterior and their interior. As one cosmetic surgeon quipped, facial surgery can turn an eyesore into an eyeful. It can turn someone's glance into a gaze. Cosmetic surgery on eyes, of course, though, was highly gendered and highly raced. Looked at, looked at globally, the most common form of cosmetic surgery set out to transform faces into white, classical, European ideal. In Asian countries, the most common procedure is the double eyelid surgery, in which a fold of skin is excised from the upper eyelids to create a crease above each eye. In one survey, 2004, involving 1,565 female college students in Korea, one quarter had undergone Asian eyelid surgery, one quarter. Some of these operations, indeed, are performed on newborn infants. Parents would give a present of eye surgery to their daughters as a reward for good grades at school. Surgery, as I mentioned, also highly gendered. One study, another study, over 6,000 patients, 94% were women. The surgery is not without risks, including scarring dry eye syndrome, lid lag, inability to close eyes, irritation, blurred vision, eye asymmetry, and sunken eyes. So what is the rationale? What was the rationale for such a delicate surgical procedure? Now, between one-third and one-half of people in Asia have naturally occurring eyelid crease. Despite this, it is generally said by people who have the surgery and the surgeons that the sought-after crease is the European eye. In other words, the surgery is part of this long history of racism. The racist insult of slant-eyed has persisted since, and particularly in America, since the earliest days of Asian immigration to America to work in the gold fields. It peaked during the Second World War with the internment of anyone who looked even remotely Japanese and continues today, of course, as a form of casual racism in schoolyards. Now, for many women having the surgery, this was a way of enhancing what Pierre Bourdieu would have called their symbolic capital. In the words of one patient, Jane, the surgery was an investment in your future, especially if you go into business. You kind of have to have a Western facial type, and you have to have like their features. Another young woman um, told Opera Whitney that her eye operation it wasn't a vanity thing. It really was this belief that if you looked a little more Western and a little less Asian, it's like having a great degree from a better school. It's something to put on your portfolio. Why is this upper eyelid crease considered more normal than the non-crease? 
in her wonderful book, I really recommend it, called The Cosmetic Gaze, Body Modification and the Construction of Beauty. Bernadette Wegenstein had a term for this. She called it the internalization of an aesthetic gaze. In other words, the double eyelid considered normal or natural and therefore better. To advance in a global economy that was economically and culturally dominated by the West, facial architecture and expression needed to conform to that dominant uh, power. Asians could choose to improve their prospects by facial and particularly eye resculpturing. Cosmetic surgery was transformed in this way from a matter um, of racism to a matter of so-called personal choice. Cosmetic surgeons themselves reinforced the view that the double fold was more aesthetically beautiful. One doctor, Dr. Ku, contended that the eye is the window to your soul and having a more open appearance makes you look brighter, more inviting. Another doctor, Dr. Gee, similarly insisted that I would say 90% of people look better with double eyelids. It makes the eye look more spiritually alive. With a single eyelid, frequently they would have a little fat pad underneath, which can half bury the eye. And so the eye looks small and unenergetic. The author of very popular, the most popular American book, uh, 1990, called Cosmetic Surgery for the Asian Face, claimed that Traditional Asian cultures have a tendency to place great significance on physiognomy, that is, the relationship of physical traits and characteristics to behavior and personality, as well as to prospects for success in business, friendship, marriage, and other relationships. Its proponents believed that the absence of the palpable fold was responsible for producing the so-called passive expression that seems to epitomize the stoical and unemotional manner of the Oriental. Cosmetic surgeons Richard Alderson and Richard Epstein elaborated such arguments in a book called The Miracle of Cosmetic Plastic Surgery. According to them, the eyelids of Orientals hangs down like a thick curtain, obscuring the eyeline margin. This upper lip droop conceals a portion of the iris, framing an expressionless eye peeking through, an image that, mostly through fiction, fr fiction has become associated with mystery, intrigue, and inscrutability. They went further arguing that their patients chose to have this operation to satisfy their own aesthetic preferences or those of their immediate peer group. Many Chinese, for example, tend to look der derisively upon the mouse-like eye. The mouse is not esteemed in Chinese culture. And girls with that feature encounter romantic difficulties. So who were their typical patients? Well. They discussed this case of SN. 
I think this is SN. Certainly, the story, this photograph appears on the same page as that they, when they're discussing um, SN. She was an Oriental, as they put it, who visited their surgery. They described this 26-year-old married woman as a shy, reticent, introverted girl who confessed that she wanted to become more beautiful. She had met and married her American husband, a Marine Lieutenant, in Vietnam three years previously and moved with him to the United States. However, he teased her about her eyes, telling her she was constantly looking sleepy. He had begun comparing her to American girls, and she felt that the comparison was now based on more than just visual perception. The appearance that had been they went on. The appearance that had been incitingly exotic in Vietnam now became obtrusively foreign on Main Street. To recapture her husband, she wished to have big, round, beautiful eyes like American girls. The surgeons, unfortunately, did not leave their analysis at that point. They described the woman's eyes as puffed out, with a fatty fullness of the upper lids, the typical single eye. They then admitted that, in the surgeon's ju judgment, her eyes were brimming with oriental charm and gentle humility. They nevertheless decided to operate, and we're not told the final result, except that the surgery had the effect of alleviating her flat appearance. This, of course, was Orientalism at its most racist. Just to conclude, eyes convey messages to others. The interpretation of eye shape and color has been used to distinguish between different degrees of civilization, scientific racism in other words, to identify personality traits and to detect terrorists. Eyes are mythological, metaphorical, historical, and above all, moral. As Paul Coelho put it, Paolo Coelho put it, eyes are like a mirror. They also reflect the person looking into them. Eyes weep, conveying sorrow, pain, nostalgia. They echo power differentials in our society. People responsible for the infant socialization pay attention to some tears and not to others. Some tears are kissed better, others ignored. It makes a difference if you are poor, it matters if you are a girl or a woman. In the words of the great feminist philosopher Lucia Ingra, um, she wrote, don't weep. One day we will learn to say ourselves, and what we will say is far more beautiful than our tears. Thank you.